Hello and welcome to the Scottish Clans Podcast. I'm Clint Edwards. Thank you for joining me today. I have, for today's episode, a little bit of a project that I've been working on and I can't wait to share with you what I've found out and learned through this little project. Before I get to what I have learned about the clans and the Jacobite rebellion, rebellions, plural, let me read to you a little bit of listener feedback that I didn't do last time, didn't quite get to it, and I just want to take some chunks out of this, and I think if I take sizable enough chunks without letting it take over the episode, I think I'll be able to catch back up with where we're at now and, and feedback that I'm getting currently. So this, so this goes back a little ways, but Stephen Campbell said, Good evening, Clint. I have a question, too, actually. I have been watching a series on Amazon called A Walk Through History with Sir Tony Robbins. In episode two, he is in Scotland. He interviewed a fellow about the kilt. This person stated that the early kilts were more of a heavy wool blanket and that during battles the Scots would take them off and basically fight naked. Have you found any evidence to support this claim? I am new to this line of history and have never heard such a thing. Alright, so before I move on to the second question, let me just tackle that one. Thank you, by the way, Stephen Campbell, for your communication with me and involvement in this podcast. So as far as throwing off the kilts and fighting naked, a, a, a pretty simple Google search, most of the thing, and and I'm not saying that that's the, that is doctrine, that is the truth, whatever, but when you see a lot of sources that kind of agree and, and are hitting in the same area and you can see certain themes, you either need to challenge the whole theme or you got to accept it as, okay, that's probably pretty close to how it really was. Most of the stuff I have seen will say that there's very little evidence of any kind of people wearing kilts before either the late 1500s or early 1600s. Now, that doesn't mean that they weren't wearing them for quite a while, a generation or two before that. I don't know when because it's hard to tell because of the, the lack of evidence. So I don't know. So it, it would depend largely on the time period you're talking about. Are you talking about the wars of the three kingdoms that, that Scotland was embroiled in and those fighting under Graham of Montrose and, and, and those fights? I don't know. I don't yeah, and so you probably ought to look at what time period and in, in that time period that you're looking at, what what armor were they using, and who was wearing armor? Armor was it the only only the elite that were wearing armor that could afford it, or were there certain types of other armor that the lower class people who didn't have as much? I mean, there's there's different ways that you could approach that whole subject to say so to say that. And, and and you know these these kind of programs like a walk through history, they they're they're usually they usually don't have the time to really dive into it. They're usually trying to give you this really broad overview, and then just move on because they're trying to cover a lot like all the major points of Scottish history in a thirty minute or sixty minute or episode or maybe an hour and a half documentary. And even still, that's so little time. To pack so much into it so I would say dive into it a little bit more look at time periods look at what armor were they wearing because were, were they fighting naked if you if if a clan if a person in the Mackay clan if he took his tartan his kilt off 
Would he be naked or would he be wearing other things anyway? So you want to look at that. Look at what time period you're talking about. Are you talking about 1400s, 1300s? Are we talking about the Scottish Wars of Independence? Are we talking about Robert the Bruce? Because nobody was wearing a kilt back then. I think there's pretty good scholarly consensus that nobody was wearing kilts back then. There was tartan material, but the kilt as we understand it today was probably not worn, and that's where Outlaw King got it right, the movie with Chris Pine in it and several other good actors. <coughs> Excuse me. Anyway, um, yeah, so there's, there's, there's a lot packed into that question. The second question that Stephen Campbell asks is, I have only recently found your podcast, love it by the way, and I am catching up on all the episodes. And one you mentioned that the clan system is dead. I get that in a political and dominant force the system is not what it was in the, day, in the old days. However, do you not think that the kindred spirit and loyalty to one's clan still survives today, even though it is not the same system? Yes, Stephen, absolutely. That kind of stuff still survives today. Um, the, when I say the clan system is dead, I'm talking about the clan system as, as we always talk about it, as it's commonly portrayed. When we think of the clan system, we think of a, a figurehead of some sort who is connected with the people of the clan by either real or perceived kinship, and that he approaches, you know, like a to compare a, 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 the clan system to something that's not the clan system, because sometimes that's a really good way to get an idea of something is by looking at something that compares to it rather or that contrasts to it. So we'll look we'll look at the the, the case in England. If an, if an English man of power and and position and title was calling up people to fight, generally he's not going to put three or four hundred guys on a battlefield because they feel some kind of kinship to him. And if you go back to the structure of a clan, I don't want to be too simplistic about this. It's not like everybody in that clan territory identified. Let's go back to the Mackay example. Every single person that lived in the chief of Makai's territory, Lord Ray, not not everybody would have thought that they were related to him. But a lot would have. He could put, a, at, at certain times in history, he could put a lot of men on a battlefield. And a good chunk of those men would have been would have called up because he was their clan chief, not necessarily because he had some sort of title. Similar, like you could use the, the Campbell of Argyle, Duke of, or Earl of Argyle, later dukes, earlier earls. When they called men up, you know, and keep in mind that those episodes we did on the Campbell branches, you have the Campbells of Auchenbreck and the Campbells of Ardkinglis who would provide the military trainers and commanders for the Campbells. You have the Campbells of Glenorchy and the Campbells of Cotter and the Campbells of Luden. And, and so you could, that guy could put a pretty good body of men on a battlefield through kinship. Never mind all the other people who lived on his land that were answering a a call or a, some other variant of kinship or, or feudalism. Keep in mind that feudalism and the clan system were not mutually exclusive. They're they're both going on at the same time. But as as opposed to other countries who weren't so kin based in their societal structure as Scotland was, and there's a lot of scholarly work on that. Okay, so. So that's what we're thinking of when we think of the clan system. And so that is dead. No, none of the clan chiefs today are going to say, Hey, guys, I know that I am the senior 
representative of the leading kindred of this group and you are related to me and as your chief as your patriarchal figure I need your help because the clan's honor is at stake and we're gonna go to we're gonna go to war here so rally yourselves up and grab your weapons and let's go fight that stuff doesn't happen so in that sense it's dead now do all of the the Gordons feel some sort of affinity toward each other maybe Maybe the, especially the ones who are more strictly minded. So that stuff that you mentioned, yes, absolutely. The kindred spirit, the loyalty to a clan, yes. But but what we look at as a clan system from the 1500s, that doesn't exist today. But but absolutely, people. I, I think if the things that you mentioned here, like don't you think that still exists today? I think if they didn't exist today, this podcast wouldn't be going. Nobody would be or very few people would ever listen to it. Not like my dozens that listen to it now. <laughs> anyway, I, I absolutely do agree with you that that exists today. So when if I ever, and I don't, I don't remember what my exact words were when I said the clan system is dead, but as it existed in the 1500s, that does not exist today. Um, and and we'll, we'll actually get into that a little bit in our episode. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push on to Katie Viney. Where have you been? It's been a while since last episode. Sorry if I missed something. Katie, appreciate it. I was out of loop doing some military stuff. It was an old comment. She, she's listening to episodes since then. She's probably got it. But John Anderson said, and this is kind of uh, interesting for anybody listening. He says, hi, are you aware that Michael Newton has an online course on Scottish heritage starting Monday? It looks amazing. Now, this information might be pretty dated. By the way, that's, I'm, I'm an end quote. It looks amazing, end quote. So Michael Newton, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, I've I've cited his works extensively in certain in some episodes more than others, but he is somebody that I kind of keep an eye on and I like reading his stuff. So John Anderson, who is who has commented on this podcast before, he he threw that out for us. So I have to look into that, John. I've usually I'm doing all I can do just to make sure I've got material for an episode ready. And a lot of the things that, like a Michael Newton online course on Scottish heritage, that I would be really, really interested in, it's hard to get to. So, but give me time. I haven't given up on it. And thank you for sharing that with us. And I hope that me mentioning it in an episode blasted out there to a bigger audience. Also, Scott Hamilton, he has posted a lot of. Um, he's, he gave me some links to look up. He his comments here mostly going after a DNA type subject within Scottish clans. I'll read one of his comments here. I have done DNA testing through Family Tree DNA and a part of the Hamilton project which provided some amazing insights into the larger family tree. Gordon Hamilton, who is at Penn State University, runs this research and he posts a link. And I will share all these links with you guys on the, the Scottish clans Facebook page. He said, back to his comment, we Hamiltons descend from multiple haplogroups, which makes me wonder how many of us are true, quote-unquote, Hamiltons, and how many were given the name over the centuries. I have traced my Scottish roots through my paternal line to when my line came to the colonies in the late 1600s. We are theorizing, based on the documentation we have, that our Hamilton line came to the U.S. as a result of indentured servitude. That would be another interesting topic you might also cover in later episodes and how the clans were affected by the Scottish and English civil wars and subsequent banishment to the colonies. And he gives me another link to look up. And this, he said, so anyway, he basically the rest that I've got on him is him hooking me up with, with no, um, links. 
to things that would be interesting to read. So I'm going to try to make sure I get those links posted on the Scottish Clans Facebook page. And that is one reason, what I'm doing right here with these last couple of comments, letting the broader group know of some of the things that are out there, sources, events, that sort of thing. That's why I want to transfer my Facebook page from a page to a group so that you guys can get involved. You can post your own things in there and you can cross talk with each other and it can be a forum for that whereas right now mostly it's just you guys giving me messages and then I have to do the extra work of turning around and making sure I post it on there rather than just let you guys talk on there. So once again, things I, I hope to get to sometime in the near future. All right. Um, he says, I continue to enjoy your podcast and learning so much about other clans. I believe it was the Septs and Branches episode that made me think about how region, language, dialect, etc. create variations in a surname. And then he talks about how that might regard to, to Hamilton and all the variations of Hamilton you can find. He asks, I'd be curious how these originated in a case like this. Are they all Hamilton or are they completely different families? So that's where I'm going to I'm going to take a break on that for comments and I'm not going to read any more but to wrap that up yeah they're not different clans necessarily just because you have a different spelling or different slightly different pronunciation especially what you see when they when they immigrate now there's there is variety over within the British Isles about spelling and pronunciation but I think you'll find more uniformity there when you push out to previous uh, British colonial locations like Canada, United States, Australia, New Zealand, maybe some other places I'm not thinking of right now. You get into those places and you, I think you see the, the variety really start to expand because you have people that are removed from the Scottish context and don't know of any kind of traditional spellings that would exist over there that if you're recording it to other Scots who are have been who are literate and have been literate and anyway they might write it down in a more and I won't say completely but more uniform way you come over to these colonial areas that are now several generations removed from Scotland but when they first come over and you're trying to tell your name to a guy whose ancestors migrated to that location from England don't know doesn't know the, the, his own ancestors didn't know a ton about Scots and he sure doesn't because that was a few generations ago and now he's just kind of writing it down however so you see that variety expand but that doesn't mean they're necessarily a different group of people all right so let's get into what uh, I just want to give you this little brief update it's kind of late right now actually and I'm pro my wife probably wonders if I really love her because she's going to sleep and, and settling in for the night and I'm up doing this podcast but this is when I had to do it today, so and I wanted to get it knocked out. We got back late. We were we went skiing for the first time as a family. We decided my wife and I to just we will okay. Let me back up. Last year at about this time of year, right right it was actually Christmas Eve. We went skiing as a family. Some close friends of ours up there, Andy and and Abby, they they invited us over there to to go skiing with them. And well, they're snowboarders. They're actually really, really, really good snowboarders. Andy and Abby Berg. They they're really good snowboarders, and they're teaching their little kids to snowboard. And it's really cute. So they so we went with them, and we found out that my son really took to it naturally and did really well with the snowboard. So my wife and I decided to just outfit the family, get season passes, 
So today was our first run. It started off pretty rough, but it ended pretty strong. So, yeah, we had a good time, but we got in kind of late. And now it's after 11 o'clock, and I want to go to bed, but I really want to get this podcast also put out there. What else is going on? I don't know. There's other stuff going on, but you guys probably don't care. Um, I'm just glad you guys decided to join join in with me tonight. Thank you for, for tuning into this podcast. So l- let me share with you some of the things that I've been doing. Let me tell you, explain to you my project that I've been working on. I wanted to know, so there's a certain way that the Jacobite rebellions are portrayed. For those of you who are completely new to Scottish history, I'm going to try to do this very succinctly so I don't lose everybody else. The Stuart Dynasty, been in power since when? The mid to late 1300s. I didn't research all this, but we've had, you have Robert II, who's the first Stuart King, and clear up through, like a lot of your famous monarchs from Scotland are Stuarts. You had Mary, Queen of Scots. She was famous, and there's been movies and shows done about her. Then her son was James the sixth of Scotland, but then his relative, Queen Elizabeth of England, died and he was the next in line for the throne. So he now becomes James the first of England and moves his court to London. I had one professor in college say it was like getting a promotion because England was far more wealthy than Scotland was. So he moves his court down to London. He's the one that was responsible for the King James Version of the Bible and the Ulster Plantations, where he kindly excused the native Catholic, more Gaelic-speaking Irish from their lands in in northern, in in Ulster, the kingdom that that occupied the northern part of the island of Ireland, and planted it with supposedly loyal Protestants. Anyway, that's the King James, and both Mary, Queen of Scots, and that particular King James are Stuarts. So... You ha- just going super brief. This in the sixteen hundreds, the Stuarts lose the throne. They get chased out, and they're replaced with a different dynasty. Up to the point in question that we're talking about right now. But by the way, it's way more. There's way more to it than this. But I'm trying to be brief. The time that we're talking about, you have the Hanoverian dynasty that are taking over. The Stuarts want the throne back. They've been in exile in continental Europe. And they want a shot at it again. So you had, you had a lot more going on with Stuart rebellions than what I'm going to explain to you. But what I'm focused on is a rebellion, an uprising, a tr- an attempt to get the throne back by the Stuarts in 1715 and another one in 1745. There were more than that, but those are two major ones. And that's kind of where I'm focusing my little project on right now. Okay, and so you had these conflicts, and they came back in, and they tried to rally people that would be loyal to them, try to chase the Hanoverians out. The Hanoverians were from, George I was from Germany originally. Now, for those of you, my United States listeners, which is the, the vast, Podbean tells me that the vast bulk of you are United States listeners, the Hanoverian dynasty, we fought our revolution against King George III. So same same family that we fought against as the Jacobites were fighting against, except for we won. Just want to throw that out there. So 
the Stuarts, why do they call them the Jacobites? Well, because English is the only language where the biblical name Jacob is pronounced James. So when you pronounce James in the original Latin, it's Jacob or Jacob. And James, uh, what was he? James the seventh, I believe, was the old pretender. So he was the one trying to get his throne back. And then his son, Charles Edward Stuart, better known as Bonnie Prince Charlie, he's the was the representative of the Stuarts in the rebellion of 1745. Now it's termed rebellion today because they didn't win, and the Hanoverians win, so I call it a rebellion. Anyway, so how these these rebellions, these Jacobites. So if you oh, anyway, if you follow James, then you're at whose Latin name is Jacob or ja Jacob Jacob, then you're a Jacobite. Okay, so there's the Jacobites, people who supported the Stuarts getting their throne back and were willing to fight for it. So the the way that this rebellion, these rebellions, and specifically the, the the one that's most probably the most well-known is the 45 Rebellion. It was very successful at first, and and they, the Jacobite army punched deep into England. The rumor was that George, King George had his bags packed, his boat ready. He was about to sail back to Germany. I don't know if that's... I haven't confirmed that or not, but that's kind of what some people were under the impression of. Anyway, and then for some reason, and this is one of history's mysteries... They just turn around and head back to Scotland. Some people think it was because they were getting too far away from their supply trains and all that. I haven't said all this, and, and this is not meant to be an episode on the history of the Jacobite Rebellion. I'm just trying to lay a brief foundation for people who are completely coming into this new. Okay, so the, the way that this rebellion is often portrayed is it was a bunch of Highlanders fighting who were loyal to the Stuarts who are fighting the English. And... That was that was how the that's how it looks a lot of times in in the history the histories of this and I don't know if that's just the popular histories on that you get on a Google search or in a Wikipedia article or what but that's the way it's portrayed. What I want to do is dig up a little deeper into this subject and think, okay, was this a Highland versus a Highland Scott versus Lowland in England fight? My conclusion on that was no. It's a lot more mixed up than that. Now, I want to be, at, at, before I get too far into this, tell you what my sources I'm getting this off. This is meant to be a very skim-the-top, first-impression effort here. So I'm using Wikipedia. Now, if for any of you who don't know my thoughts on Wikipedia, go back to the episode on sources because I laid it out there extensively. Wikipedia has its place in a learning environment. This should never be cited on a scholarly paper, but it does have its place. And as a, as a f media or a platform to get information really quickly, you know, I'm not looking to study. I, this, this will never get done if I go clan by clan looking up all the scholarly sources on the clan and the traditional and the clan websites and all this stuff just to, so I can say I didn't use Wikipedia. I just don't have the time for that. So I was trying to get a lot of information in a very short time. So I just went clan, clan article by clan article and just skipped right to the part where it talked about the Jacobite Rebellion of, or the Jacobite Rising of 1745 
and and see what side were they on. That's all I wanted to know. Just a, and then I wanted to take this very shallow look across a broad base of clans, and I would want to start mapping it. So I used a, I went to Google Maps, and I started dropping pins on each of the different locations of the the clan headquarters, and I tried. Like plan headquarters change, and that's that is one of the huge lessons from this effort, is we can't get too locked in. You guys saw actually this when I was answering listener feedback, is you when you're answering questions that you have about clans, you got to be specific on that time period. Uh, let me use the McFarlands as a case in point here. The McFarlands controlled their territory was the country surrounding the northwestern shore of Loch Lomond. Uh, uh, an area that, that there's an actual town called Erecker, and the, that area around that, they, they call that Erecker as well, like the uh, Erecker Alps. They're part, part of the Trosach mountain range. That's McFarland territory there, northwest of Loch Lomond and, and bordering up on Loch Lomond. In fact, their original stronghold and headquarters was on an island in northern, the northern part of Loch Lomond called Inverouglas. And they had, a, they had a fortified dwelling there on that island. Well, during the fight against Cromwell, I don't think it was Cromwell himself, I think it was one of his guys, one of his generals, Burned, burned it to the ground or destroyed it with cannon fire or something. Anyway, it was uninhabitable after they got done with it. And that is when the McFarland chiefs moved their headquarters to Erecker, which is at the very, very northeastern or northern end of Loch Long. So it's, it's just, and if you look at it on Google Earth, it's just through a mountain. You just go through a canyon or a, I don't know if it's a glen or a, with the, the, the it's it looks like it, it, here in the west we just call it a canyon. I, anyway, it's a you go up, up between the mountains and over a pass. You just go drops you right down. And I don't even know. I think it, I doubt it'd take you uh, maybe a half hour to drive it. I didn't look at exactly how many miles it was though. So that anyway, it's not. It doesn't look. This wasn't a huge move, but it was okay. Here was their headquarters one time, and here was another time. So if you're looking at the 1500s, their headquarters is in Veruglas. If you're looking at late 1600s and past, it would have been at Erecker. Okay, so that's just a case in point. So when I'm dropping these pins on this Google map, I'm trying to drop the pin where the clan headquarters would, you know, where the chief of that name would have had his his dwelling place, his stronghold, whatever it was, during the mid-1700s. But So when you look at this, I'm going to post a link on the Facebook page to this map so that you can use this. It is not meant to be an exhaustive representation of the Jacobite Rebellion and which clans were. I know I'm missing clans on here. And maybe where I dropped the pin wasn't the exact spot, but but the effort has done its point for what I was looking for. I'm looking for trends here. So I'm not as concerned with, gosh, did I get the exact right location for this clan? Was that exactly where their headquarters? That would have bogged me down in time. So I marked all of the Jacobite clans in red, all of the Hanoverian clans in blue, and now there are other clans that were split. And I'm going to name off all these clans, okay? There's other clans where part of the clan 
went with one side, part of the clan went with another. And there's some really interesting stories that come out of that. Off the top of my head, like the Macintosh story. You have the chief of the Macintoshes, who is also the head of all the, the Clan Catton Confederation. If you're wondering what that is, I've done another episode on the Clan Catton Confederation, so go back and listen to that. Anyway, it, it, it's a bunch of other clans that have joined together. Some of them are related and connected to an original Clan Catton that existed a long time ago. And some of them just joined up for, they felt like it'd be in their best interest if they joined this group of clans. So you have, and so the chief of the Macintoshes was the leader of this confederation. He, during this rising, led government troops. But his wife, this is really interesting, his wife calls out the Clan Hatton. So the vast majority and the bulk of Clan Hatton, all the clans that, comp- that were part of that confederation, answered her call she put the chief of the mcgillivrays in charge of the force and he led them but they responded to her in in the interest of the jacobites okay so they were split all right so i marked the jacobite clans in red once again hanoverian clans in blue the split clans in yellow and the neutral clans in gray and I only marked them neutral if it specifically says they were neutral. If I can't find any mention of any involvement in the Jacobite Rising of either 1750 or 1745, in this case specifically 1745, I don't mark them on the map at all. They're completely absent from the study, which is one of the interesting things I saw here that I'll get to later. Okay, so that's an explanation of the Jacobite Rebellion, an exact... explanation of how I'm going about this project, a disclaimer that is not an exhaustive list of Jacobite clans, but it's enough to show me certain trends, and that's what I wanted to see. And I want to see if the portrayal of these risings is true, because everybody in their minds has, because if you've seen any, and even I think some of the pictures are contemporary, drawings and paintings of like the Battle of Culloden, let's say, because there are some. What you'll see is kilted clansmen on one side and British uniformed troops on the other side. So if you're looking especially at the the graphic representation of this of these battles of the Jacobite Risings, it looks like Highlanders versus Lowlanders or Englishmen. Okay, so let me get to some of the conclusions that I found as I've done this study and as I look at the map. So, first off, let me before I get to my conclusions, let me actually tell you which clans are which. I'm just going to read their lists, okay? So, so listen, if you don't know a lot about the clans, you, you don't have a picture in your head of where the different clans had their territories, maybe just listen for those clans that you have a personal connection to and just see what side they are on. If, on the other hand, you have studied the Scottish clans extensively, which I know some of you have by some of your feedback that you give me, then I want you to see if you can detect any trends here. What do you notice? Okay, so let's go. Jacobite clans. We've got the McDonald's of Clan Rannell, the McDonald's of Glengarry, the McDonald's of Keppoch, the McDonald's of Glencoe, Clan Donaghy, also, also known as the Robertsons of Struan. You have Clan Hatton, represent, so that's, I mentioned that 
before specific clans, part of Clan Hatton, that did answer Lady McIntosh's call were the Farkersons, the Davidsons, the McGillivrays, the, the McBeans, and probably most of the McIntosh clan. Also, you had the McLeods of Rossi. You had the McClays, who their, their territory was um, on the Isle of Lismore, which is a, a, an ecclesiastical center of, of ancient, ancient date. Let's see, you have the McLeans of Duart, the McGregors, the McDougals, the Boyds, the Frasers, the Chisholms, the Menzies, McLaughlins, McLarens, Stuarts of Appen, McKinnons, Irvins, I specifically think that's Irvin of Drum, Spalding, Ogilvy, Hay, Cameron, Grant of Glen Morriston, Drummond, Bannerman, Crawford, Elphinstone, Kincaid, Weems, which is spelled like Wemis, but it's I believe it's Weems, McPhee, Oliphant, Rattray, Urquhart, Sterling, and Wedderburn. All right, let's go into the Hanoverian clans now. McDonnell of Slate, Grant of Fruchy, Monroe, Ross, Macintosh, which would be, so they should be in the, actually in the split clans section there, so you're seeing them both places. They should, they should have, I should have taken him out of Jacobite and Hanoverian and put him in the split category. Keeping going with the Hanoverian clans, the Mackays, the Sutherlands, the McLeods of Dunvegan, the Campbells of Argyle, and I, I believe by implication, the rest of the Campbells, all the other branches. I believe they're all on the same side. The McNabs, the Forbes, Lindsays, Brodies, Montgomery's, Agnews, Scots, Carmichael's, Cathcart's, Haldane, Macduff, and the Macduffs and the Sempils. Clans who were neutral, where they, it actually says, no kidding, they refrained from joining either side. That's the only ones I included in the neutral category. You have the McLeans of Loch Bui, the Grams of Montrose, the Roses, the Lamonts, the McNichols, the Maitlands, and the Tweedies. So clans that were split, where it specifically says they had members fighting on both sides. You have the Mackenzies, the McRays, the Shaws, the Guns, the Gordons, the Buchanans, the Sinclairs, the Cochrans, the McInneses, McIntyres, Murrays, McMillans, McTavishes, and the Mathesons. Okay, let me, let me tell you a little bit more about how I decided what I was looking for in there. Some of them ended up in, let's say, the Hanoverian category. If it said, hey, the leader of the kindred at this time commanded government troops. So I put that kindred there on the Hanoverian side. Here's the deal. Sometimes it there's there's a difference in phrasing that I want you to, to notice when you're reading about this stuff. This this just leads me right into takeaways. So maybe I should just go there with it. So there's a difference when it talks about joining one side or the other, or even just giving the clan history, generally speaking. And this is true of the Wikipedia articles and many of the different clan history websites that you could go to. And if you're wondering which ones I'm talking about, go back to the sources episodes. There's two of them on there. One about the sources, the other one about the problem with the sources. And this got me into a train of thought that many of you are, know that I'm, if you've been listening for a while now, you know that... I've really spent a lot of time and research 
diving into this particular issue with Scottish history. There, there's a, in my mind, there's different. There's a difference be, between saying, "Hey, the Mackenzies showed up on the battlefield with 500 other guys," and, or sometimes it specifically says of their clan. Now, look, we're not. If you go back to the structure on the clan, we're not talking about 500 guys with a surname Mackenzie. But it is the clan system. It is a kin-based society to use scholarly language like John Bannerman, Stephen Boardman, other pr- these prominent, prominent uh, scholars in this particular field. A kin-based society. So it's, it's a clan deal. And so the Mackenzie, the chief of the Mackenzies, and I'm not talking about any particular battle or even the Jacobite rising of any kind. Any time in the history where it says the Mackenzie showed up on a battlefield with 500 of his clansmen, that to me sounds different. And I distinguish it between that and when it says, when all it talks about is the activities and involvements of individuals with that surname which is what you see in these wikipedia and other clan websites their histories these broad shallow skimming the top histories is it makes it look like there wasn't really anything clan clanish going on it follows the activities from father to son of a certain surname without any indication that there was a clan to back up this particular individual line. Does that make sense to you guys at all? Please please let me know if you, if you kind of feel me with what I'm talking about. It'll talk about, I don't know what... Let's just say, let's just, well, let's go to the lowlands because this is basically, this is mostly what I'm talking about here. Because, and this is where it's at. So, this led me to have the question of so, were these lowland groups, were they really clans or were they just aristocratic families that looked a lot like those that were south of the border in England? Now, as I dove into this a little bit, you go back to the episode entitled, is your clan really a clan? I answer this question there. At the same time, I believe that clans looked different in different parts of Scotland. Because I get into these, these the lowland. I'm looking in a let's let's take um, let's take the Scots. They were a very very powerful border clan, but they were involved in stuff all over Scotland. Okay, the Scots. A border clan, I, and they were, and they were one of the names I read off in one one party or another. I believe they're Hanoverian, but it only talks about individuals. It never talks about what the clan Scott was doing. It never says, "Hey, the chief of the Scots with a thousand Horsemen, because remember the border guys are horse people. Now keep. Okay, I'm not going to try not go, not to go down too many rabbit trails here. It never says he showed up with a thousand of his clansmen on the battle and 
fought for the Hanoverian side. It says, hey, this one guy commanded government troops, never indicates that they were his guys, shared a surname, shared any kind of kinship. Do, do, do you guys, I hope, I, hope, I hope this is clear to you, like where this is leading my mind to go. So by this time, were the were the clan, were the clans were the lowland clans even still clans? I do believe that at one time most of Scotland was a kin-based society. You go back to the 1400s, I believe that even you go well. First of all, during that time period, the border clans were rocking and rolling, doing their border thing, but so were the the kindreds all over. You got the the Gaelic clans of southwest Scotland of Galloway that I did a an episode on them or two. I can't remember. And, and they were acting in a, in a clan society back then. And you go into the Aberdeenshire Lowland area up there. But that, that was – and even Alison Cathcart and some of her, her stuff has talked about the blurry lines between Gallic and non-Gallic up there. And you had people Gallic-speaking people in the Lowland areas in the 1500s. Weapons and armor looked similar to what they did in the Highlands. And it, was just, it, was, it wasn't a clear-cut line at all. But you get into like the mid 1700s, and first of all, most of your border clans are done, because when James the Sixth of Scotland inherited the English throne, became James the First there. Now that that border country isn't so much a border country anymore, and and this King James made a concerted effort to do away with the border thing. To, it, he just in his mind it needed to stop altogether, and he was successful, and he used Britain's colonial involvement as as one outlet for that so a lot of those border guys they got hemmed up if they were if they were seen trying to continue the borderways after king james obtained the english throne he didn't have any patience for it all he got rid of them he he either prosecuted them and took care of the law and dealt with them according to right then and there others he he deported sometimes it was not very far away it was just across the irc and hey you're going to go to one of the ulcer plantations get out of here go there sometimes it's clear across the ocean as the as the north american british colonies north america get get up and going that was one place they could go the caribbean was another place you could send them australia i don't that might have been later i don't know so much about that but that was one way he did it. So he, he effectively crushed. So after this union of the crowns, I think it was in 1603, you don't – the border clans, they're not a thing after that. But that makes me wonder, what about the rest? At what point do a lot of these lowland – because like I said, this change in language between a chief showing up with his men on a battlefield and, hey, this one guy that we're going to call the chief of the Lockhart's – he commanded government troops. He, individual, he, not, hey, the Lockhart clan, 300 of them joined the Hanoverian side. You know, like there's you, you, there's a difference in language there. And for me, that I start to think, okay, if everybody at, maybe at one time in Scotland was no kidding in a kin-based society and living in a clan system of one type or another – but by I'm convinced that through this project by the 17 mid 1700s that was done in the lowlands that yeah and they may have may have still 
had a maybe more of a kin-based mentality than maybe an, an Englishman or I don't, I don't even know what the deal was in Wales and I should because that's where my dad's side of the family comes from is Wales. Well, at least the, the surname part and actually quite a, quite a few other branches of that side of the family tree come out of Wales. But I'm not sure, but I, I'm just led to believe that in Scotland, this whole kin-based thing extended broader and was a bigger part of society than it was to any of their neighbors in the British Isles. Um, now, I, I know the people in Ireland, they don't like to be considered a British Isle, so I'm not going to use that term for them. And and I don't know to what degree the, the kin-based society was still ongoing in Ireland, but definitely I'm convinced it was a bigger deal in other parts of in, in, in Scotland, but I don't know. By the mid 1700s, is the clan system on its way out? If not done, minimalized because you just don't see this happening so much with the lowland clans. I mean, there's there's a clear there's only a few of the lowland clans where it says, "No kidding, this clan joined this side or the other side." Most of the lowland histories say, "Hey, it was just this guy. Let's call him the chief." He joined the Hanoverian side or the, the Jacobite side. Either way, I still counted that side as, as the, that clan as having joined that side. So maybe there's some refinement to do with my project here. What are some of the other takeaways I found here? I found that the, the Highland Lowland line was not a factor in deciding who was going to be Jacobite and who was going to be Hanoverian. If you look at this map, and, and by the time I'm posting this, there will be a link in the Facebook page so that you also can look at this map and I'm looking at the map right now and all my pins that I've dropped representing the different sides taking taken there's Jacobite clans in the Aberdeenshire lowlands and there's Jacobite clans in the West Highlands Niles but guess what else there's Hanoverian clans in the lowlands and Hanoverian clans in the very f- farthest reaches of the highlands there's clans that were split all over the that country. They from er, everywhere from, let's see, in the southwest. Who do you have here? I can you can touch on these markers. The McMillans of Knapp. They're a West Highland clan. They were split in their allegiance, and then so were the Gordons of Huntley. Clear up in the north northeast of Scotland, up, up. Uh, I don't know what the major town is. It's east of Edinburgh and northwest of Aberdeen, but it's they were considered lowland, although they had they were very very involved in the in the Highland Gaelic speaking world. Anyway, they were split, and so that doesn't seem to be an indicator. The Hanoverians all over the neutral sides. Look the. Uh, here, another one, like you, so you had most of Clan Donnell fully invested in the Jacobite rising. But then you had the McDonald's of Slate who said, I'm, I'm not, I have no part of this. This does not look like a well-thought-out deal. I'm not doing this. And they, and they committed troops and raised independent Highland companies for the Hanoverians. So you, you have – it's spread all over. Just a quick glance at the map will indicate that the Jacobite clans – all over Scotland, not just the Highlands, all over, were more numerous than either the Hanoverians or the Split clans. 
they just by and I don't know what that actually means in terms of men on the battlefield, but the the numbers of that kin group seems to be heavier in favor of the Jacobite side than it does the Hanoverian side. Now here's to back up what I was talking about earlier about what's going on with the lowland clans. If you look at the if you draw a line between the Firth of Clyde and the Firth of Forth, okay, so across the waste of Scotland, there's only a small, small handful of markers south of that line compared to above it. Now the Highland line does that's not the Highland line. The Highland line runs in diagonal, and, and it is a geographical line. When I saw it talk about culturally, it's not that well-defined. It's not, but geographically, it's very well-defined. You can look at a, a topographical map of Scotland and clearly see Highland versus Lowland. There's a, it's, I don't know if it's a fault line or what it is, but it runs from just north of Glasgow in the southwest, and it runs in a northeast line, and it gets up, I think it's called the, the Mount. M-O-U-N-T-H and then it curves up so you got Buchan in the very, like it looks like it's a shoulder of Scotland where Fraserborough is, Peterhead that that area of Scotland that's lowland area anyway and that's kind of where the, the line curves around toward so yeah that be, but so so the line between the Firth of Forth and the line uh, between the Firth of Forth and the Firth of Clyde, that's not the Highland Lowland line. But it seems like south of that line, there's not very many clans on one side or the other. There's completely no mention of any involvement at all with the Jacobite Rising of 1745 specifically. All right, what are some of my other takeaways here? I had a I wrote them down because I just was, I had a whole day at work. A lot of the things I do work right now don't take a lot of brain power. And uh, you know I'm just I'm bottom man on the totem pole, just doing a lot of grunt work, and um, I have time for my mind to just kind of think. I do a lot of podcasts, listening to the podcast, listening to audiobooks, things like that. Um, Jacobite clans are more numerous. Got that? The lo- okay, I think I mentioned that. Yeah, I think I jumped right into a lot of the stuff that I had written down. Borders are nearly vacant of any clan with the history at this time. I talked about that. Um, oh, here let's talk about something else. So, not. I think this project for me has has shown me a, an element of change with the clans. Maybe. Without diving into this more deeply, some of us consider, oh, there is this clan, and they, the McLeods, and they just existed, and they go back to some Viking because they're son of Laod, and it's a Scandinavian deal, and so they're descended from some Viking, and they're in the Outer Hebrides, and, and then here we are in the Jacobite Risings, and they fought in there too, and it was just the same the whole way through. Well, no, that's one thing that I'm seeing here is certain clans are rocking and rolling during some time periods and then just fade out as a clan. You know, there's people still roaming around with those surnames, but as a group of people that are organized, follow a leader, have some kind of clan structure along the the lines that we've we've talked about with, you know, the chief and his retinue and his household and the Dean Wessel or the gentleman of the clan and the taxman and 
the the chief has got his cousin over here who's in charge of this part of the clan territory and his brother's over doing this and his other cousin second cousin once removed is over here and he's in charge of the fighting force and and all that stuff that's done for some of these clans by the mid 1700s so what we see is the shifting changing nature of these clans that just some of them got stronger and some of them got weaker you know you see the the campbell's crescendo during the second half of the 1500s and into the 1600s they, I mean, they just become vastly powerful. While the McDonald's fade out. And that's one thing you see here at this time. I mean, where was any mention of the McDonald's of Isla? That, the McDonald's of Isla were the lords of the isles. Where are, where are they in all this? Why are the... Another change, a clan that you can see change with is the McLeods of Lewis. So you have the McLeods. So the McLeods were split into two sections, and I did an episode on the McLeods of Lewis, and I probably gave some background on the two different branches of this kindred. But you have the McLeods of Lewis, who were Shield Torkel, the seed of Torkel, and you had the McLeods of of Harrison Dunvegan, and Dunvegan is one of the most famous castles in Scotland, and it's one of the longest continuously occupied castles. I think the chief of the McLeods still lives. In, or at least partly resides. I don't know which, and I don't even know exactly what the title is. Like it's an old, anyway, it's famous. It's out on the Isle of Skye. And so this is another branch. This is Shield Tormod, or the Seed of Tormod. <coughs> well, by the mid 1700s, the McLeods of Lewis are done. There's still McLeods on the Isle of Lewis. But the Mackenzies are running the show there. That's Mackenzie territory. The Mackenzies have gobbled up all of the land holdings of the of the McLeods of Lewis, that branch. The McLeods of Harrison Dunvegan, they're still going strong. They go into the Battle of Culloden with as as a unit, as a clan, as a fighting force. Now, if any of you know what happened to the Battle of Culloden, it was an absolute disaster for Bonnie Prince Charlie's forces. But at, at that time period, you still have a functioning, and, and a, I would say maybe even a thriving McLeod of Harrison Dunvegan. But the McLeods of Lewis are done. They've been since the early 1600s. So for almost, not quite, but almost 150 years, the McLeods of Lewis have been done. The McGregors, I don't even know if by this time there were McGregors of Glen Stray. Glen Stray was the, the, were the chief of the McGregors. That was his residence. It was at the northeastern end of Loch Awe, right by where the Campbells of Glen Orkey were from. And there's there's a relationship between those two. And I've mentioned it in previous episodes. Maybe in some subsequent episode, I'll really dive into that issue. But I think I have talked about it. I think when I did the episode on the, the alliance between the McFarlands and the McGregors, I think I went into some background on McGregor's, but that's the Glen Stray. That was where their their chief residence was, and at this time, I think you have. <coughs> uh, I think Rob Roy McGregor is still alive at this time. I think he was alive for both the 1715 and 1745 rebellion or rising, but the uh the, the Glen Strait I think they're not the McGregors of Glen Stray anymore I think most of the clan lives by this time in Glen Lyon and 
also on the northeastern shore of Loch Lomond, which, which would make sense if they were close allies with the McFarlands, is that they're, they're right across the loch from each other and they can join up with each other when they go raid and spoil the Calhoun territory. Anyway, the the nature of the McGregor clan has changed significantly by then, and and actually a lot of them are living just kind of a guerrilla lifestyle. And I'm not talking about gorillas like in Africa, the great apes. I'm talking about like hit and run, plunder, do what you got to do because the government's taking it pretty hard on them. The McFarlands are not operational as a clan by this time. They didn't survive as a clan through the mid-1600s where you see them fade out. And actually they were tied up with the McGregors in this whole thing. Like the McGregors, the McFarlands were outlawed because they were rough and they didn't have the right friends in the right places. I mean, I think we've seen that you can do some pretty heinous things, but if you have the right, right position or power or you have the right friends, you can get away with it. The McFarlands didn't get away with it, and they were persecuted and uh, by, the, by the government specifically. They, their name was out. A lot of the same things that happened to the McGregors happened to the McFarlands too. All right, anyway, that's, I guess that, that's just to illustrate my point that you're going through and you're thinking, well, I'm going to see where this clan was during this time. What side did they take? And I'm looking up for the information, and I can't even find it. Like, well, what's, what's going on? Why, why is there no mention of everything? Well, you find out that actually they just kind of dissolved as a clan by that point. They didn't have a chief by, this, by the time that the 17, by 1745, they didn't have a chief. There were still people with that surname running around, but as a clan, they are not functional. So it's just it wasn't a static existence for these clans. And for many of them, they hadn't been functional for a few generations. It wasn't just like five years ago we broke up, like, the, like a band breaking up, like a middle school boyfriend and girlfriend breaking up. It was like, no, they've, they went through some hard times. They didn't make it out, and they're not a clan, really. It, like some of the other ones that are functioning still were. So that was something that, that stuck out to me as I, as I, oh, it, why, here, here's another thing that, what were some of the factors of this change? Well, <coughs> in the early 1600s, you have the statutes of Iona come forth. And one of the things in there was saying, hey, chiefs, you got to send your kids to the lowlands to be educated. Well, so that's chiefs all over the, the Western Highlands and Isles. As that happened, some of these chiefs, some of the chiefs, some of these family members go back to where they're from and they go by, they're just more educated. They've seen more places now. They can speak different languages. They can read, they can write, and they're just going to go back to be more capable chiefs. But some of them gained a taste for the lowlands. And so through the 1600s, you see more and more clan chiefs like to spend a lot of time in the happening scenes of Edinburgh or London even. And not so much back in their native glens and straths and mountains and hollers and hills. And so this creates a disconnect between the chiefs and their, and their men, their, their clan. And so that's one of the major shifts going on. What does that do for the concept of duchas? Duchas is this 
Michael Newton goes into a lot of detail on this, and I'm going to try to do some kind of justice to to this concept. <coughs> Sorry for all the coughing. I'm just I've been talking so much, and maybe I ought to just push pause and grab a glass of water. But this concept of Ducas was that this it's a clan territory, but it wasn't just boundaries on a map. It was your heritage, all of the mem the collective memory of the clan that is embedded in the landscape. There's something deep and spiritual about Duokas. It was a shared thing with the chief and the clan, and we're all in it together. That concept starts to to fade away. Not not only in the, the, the statutes of Iona, the chief's starting to spend a lot more time in in the happening scenes down in the lowland cities. That's not that's not the only factor here. Another factor that may have broken this concept down was that the government, the kings, the monarchs of Scotland, started to say, okay, I got it. Your clan's been here since time immemorial. Why don't we make this legitimate with a charter, a royal charter, saying that you, the head of this clan, the earl, the laird, whatever of this feudal title you have, in addition to your being a clan chief, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that you hold this land of me. Now one thing that happens with this is now, rather than the fact that, well, this is my clan territory because it's my clan territory. And don't mess with my clan territory. Well one thing you see is now that when the when the monarchs make these charters, they don't make it with the clan. They make it with the individual at the head of the clan. And so the, now the relationship is not between the clan and the monarch or between the chief and his clan. The relationship as regards the land is between this leader and the monarch, the chief and the monarch. And, and so the concept of territory and land ownership starts to drift away from this communal shared heritage type of concept embodied in Duochus and really it, it goes to the way, way most of us today understand land ownership. Back in Idaho before we moved I had 16 acres and that 16 acres was in my name and I did with it as I pleased without consulting with Anybody now? There's certain rules like you can't just do whatever you want, whenever you want. But it's my, it's my. I can say it's my land. And at one point, I, I did have it all paid off. It's my land. I own it. But that, so that's, that's not how it was looked at in the concept of duchess in the old traditional clan system. And and you go back to that question at the beginning of this podcast: Is a clan system dead? Well. Yeah, that was that that concept of duchess was at the center. That was the core of the clan system, and you see that starting to erode a long time before the Battle of Culloden, which wrapped up the Jacobite Rising of 1745. It actually happened in 1746, and like I mentioned earlier, it was an absolute disaster for the Jacobite forces. So. There are some things leading up to that, but just, just interesting things as you look at this map. So what I want you to know, walking away from this episode, 
I want you to know that the Jacobite rising of 1745 was not as it might look if you just see a painting of a battle where you got kilted Highlanders on one side and government uniformed troops on the other side who are from England. So it makes it look like it's a Highland fight versus a Lowlander and English fight. It was way more complex than that. Clans split up and fought against each other. Different branches of different clans fought against each other. You had McDonald's on this side, McDonald's on that side. The government Hanoverian troops weren't just lowland English troops. You had very, very, very highland groups of people, people probably a lot of whom only spoke Gaelic, fighting on the Hanoverian side. The Mackays, you don't get farther north in Scotland than Mackay territory. Well, you might. You might. The Sinclairs might have a little bit of an edge as far north that. But the, uh, the McDonald's of Slate with raising independent Highland companies, the, the Monroes, the, I mean, you get the Mackenzies, the, these, these different, these are, these are Highland clans, guys. These aren't watered down kind of Highland. Eh, we kind of acknowledge them as no, these were, these were sure enough Highlanders. And they, they joined the, the Hanoverian side. So it wasn't as simple as, as some of those, that artwork makes you believe it. The whole thing with the lowlands being almost vacant of clans that, like, what's going on? Are there, are there clans still in the lowlands? That's the question I want to throw out there. Those Anyway, those are some of the big takeaways that I had by looking at this map. So what's going on in the future? The, the next phases of this project, and I'm not telling you this is the next episode. I'm just telling you that this is an ongoing product, project. Um, we're going to look at the 1715. We're going to get the uh, map similar. So same same method, same approach as the 1745, but for the 1715, we're going to look at how it looked in 1715. Then we're going to compare were there were there clans that switched sides, and why would why would you switch sides? I don't know how deep I'm going to get to go into it, but I want to at least do this kind of a populate a map like I've done with the 45 rising, and see what we can learn and then compare and contrast. And anyway, that's kind of what where my mind's going for the future. In the meantime, I've got certain things that I've been reading that I'm really interested in. And I need to start posting more of these things that I'm getting into on I need to start posting more of them on um, the Facebook page. Right now, one of the academic articles I'm re it's a PhD thesis and I believe I got it off of academia.edu, is by Ross Mackenzie Crawford. It's entitled Warfare in the West Highlands and Isles of Scotland circa 1544 to 1615. He's just diving into like what weapons were they using, why were they fighting, how did they fight. He's just really getting into it because in his introductory stuff, he talks about, yeah, everybody talks about how war crazy these clans during this time period were, but that's all they say. They just killed each other a lot. Well, was that all there is to it? Or do we have just a generation of psychopaths grow up? Or was there was there something deeper going on here? And how did they fight? What can we learn about their weapons, their modes of warfare, their tactics? What, what about their culture made them want to fight? How did that influence their attitudes on war? And, and violence and all these things and he digs deep in it. It's a very interesting article. It's a little bit longer, so it's taken me a little bit to work through it. Plus, I don't have a lot of 
just completely unbroken time to just sit down and and push through this. But that's one thing I'm studying right now. Another thing that I found myself getting into, I don't know, I spread myself a little too thin sometimes, but I'm I'm that I got into I got into the different branches. I think my next clan cluster episode. Once again, I'm not saying that this is going to be the next episode, but the next time I do a clan cluster episode, it's going to be on the McDonald's. And specifically, I'm interested in the I think that it was you know what it was? It was that the Battle of the Shirts, Blarnalania episode where I got to talking about the McDonald's of Clan Rannell. I just thought it was interesting, and I, and I kind of wanted to get deeper into the McDonald's and kind of lay that out for you guys and for me as far as how all these different branches of the McDonald's who became clans in their own right. And keep in mind, some of them, like the McDonald's of Slate, also known as Clan Ushton and Clan Donald North, the McDonald's of Slate just completely did their own thing in this 45 rising so they were these different branches or clans in their own right and we'll talk about how they where do they all split off how they relate to each other some of them are closely related to each other more than others and anyway we'll put all that together that's probably where my mind's going in that direction other things that I want to talk about in the future aside from getting to some of your requests because there's man I've got a long list guys I've got such a long list of your requests for doing your own clans I just I've written down the Logan clan what I've got I've got my list right here let me I you know I'm just gonna run down my list for you real quick since I'm since this is a super long episode I just completely blew off my oh I'm past an hour holy cow I got the Grants the McThomases Leslie's the Rutledges I'm skipping over the ones I've already done who are that are on this list the McVericks the McPhersons, the Douglas, the Ross, Nesmith of Paso, the McLean slash McLean clans, the Lamonts, the Logans, the Morrisons. Just for all of you guys who are wondering whether I'm getting your listener feedback and whether I'm taking it seriously. I am, I promise. So far off of this list, I've already done the Roses, the Grams, the Donahues. God, is that it? I've only done three of your personal requests. I need, I need to, I need to repent, guys. I need to do more of your stuff. Anyway, so I need to get into that. Now, one of the things I specifically want to dial in on, like Ross, is on this list. Okay, so you have the Earldom of Ross, and you have the Clan Ross. You have the Earldom of Sutherland, and you have the Clan Sutherland. Are they the exact same thing? I think I might jump into that in the future. You got the Lindsays, the Earls of Crawford, but then you have people with the Crawford surname. So how are they associated with each other? I, I think I'd like to do an episode diving into that a little bit. And so for whoever, and I don't put on my list here who recommended it, so... I just see the name of the clan. I just know that I have a listener who wanted to hear me do it, which I take as a huge compliment. And if you thought I was doing a horrible job, you probably wouldn't want me to talk about your clan. So for the, whoever threw out the name Ross and wants me to do an episode on that, I think that's how we might work that in. The Douglases also. We need to do a, cl a clan cluster episode on the Douglases. 
because there is that the Douglas were an immensely powerful clan. In fact, in the mid 1400s, the Douglas Earl of Douglas, also known as the Black Douglas side of the Douglas clan, they challenged the king. They had an uprising. It failed in spectacular form, but they challenged the king for his throne. So they were they were a big deal, and they were very tied in and intermarried with the royal family and probably had a halfway decent claim. So that's something. Those are some of my thoughts for like what I'm studying right now and what I'm where I'm wanting to go with this in the future. So if I hope I hope that appeals to some of you that where we want to dive into some of this. Hopefully that last thing I mentioned, you know, you got the Earls of Ross versus the Clan Ross and how's that all work out? Hopefully it helps you understand the the nature of some of these these kindreds that you're interested in. Some of, for some of you who have reached out and said, "Hey, I'm just trying to study this line, and I really don't." Once, once again, I'm. That's 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 a almost like a separate discipline. How to, how to work the records to find your next generation back and keep pushing, keep expanding that family tree so it goes from a sapling to a mature, big oak tree with huge branches reaching all over the place and anyway i don't that's a little bit different different discipline for those of you who are wanting me to help you with your family history um i am doing some of that right now my own personal lines but i'm not good at it i've got the edwardses that go back to wales keradigion or for you english speakers like me cardigan cardiganshire they, uh, I can't get them back very far past. I think I can get back to like the mid 1700s, which is not that far back. And I'm trying to work on my McFarlane line, push that back a little bit, and I'm just. But here, here's one thing I'll I'll put, I'll t- I'll tag this in here. Look, you you know if you've listened to previous episodes that I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. I'm a Latter Day Saint. I'm not. Would would I love it if all of you converted and got baptized into, into my faith? Yeah, I'd love it. But completely set that on on the shelf. If you're just looking to do some family history, we're pretty good at it. Now, there's some of our doctrine that is the underlying foundation for why we feel so strongly about it. But you can you can use our resources independent of that. You guys can find your nearest. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Family History Center. You can go there with people who, in some cases, have some pretty good training and are a lot better than me. Especially if you want an actual... And by the way, this is free. <coughs> if you go to any other place and, and actually get somebody to just focus on you and help you with your line, you're going to end up pen, paying for it. You can go to these family history centers and... It's not like they're going to make your line their all-consuming effort as though they were being paid to do it. So there's a difference there. But if you want to go in and use a computer that's already set up for this, they've got databases, they've got, they, then they have people that that's their point in being there is to just, hey, what do you need help with? Oh, have you tried using these records? Hey, have you tried doing a search here? What if, what if, what country are you looking for? What part of that country? Anyway, some of them are really knowledgeable. Most of them are doing it on a volunteer basis. And so 
some of them aren't as knowledgeable, but if you, it, there's a lot to be said for somebody who will sit in the chair next to you and walk you through some resources that you didn't know existed and some databases and some search engines and some things like that and how to use them and how to link them together and all that stuff. So even if you, you're completely disinterested in my faith, which is fine, I'm a big fan of freedom and you being able to do whatever you want. If you're trying to push your, your family, your genealogy farther back, find out where the nearest Latter-day Saint Family History Center is and see if you can get in to use it. Um, if you can't, if you've tried, you've gone on, you've typed in, you've Googled Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Family History Center near me or near this particular city or whatever, and you can't find it like that, the church has some websites and some things, and I'm not saying it's like special access, top secret, security clearance to be able to use. It's not. It's not that. I've just used that kind of stuff before. So if you've tried your hardest, please reach out to me, and if I can find the nearest one to your city, I believe I've already done this with one of my listeners. If you need the help, just let me know. Like, hey, where's? The, can you just? I live in this town or in this county. Can you? Is there any? Latter-day Saint Family History Centers near me. I, I'll be I'd be happy to just that wouldn't take me very long to find out, and I could get you back if you're having a hard time pinning that down. But it's a great resource, and I'm I'm you're, there's no obligation. You can go in and use them. It's not like hey, sign this here and you're obligated to show up for three church meetings. There's nothing nothing like that. Just show up. We're just happy that we can help you with your family history because we feel strongly about it and we like talking with other people who feel strongly about it, even if they're coming from a completely different direction on it. Anyway, that's all I got to say about that. I need to go to bed. It's so late, but thank you for being with me. You're probably not necessarily listening to this late at night, but I'm glad that you tuned in you downloaded this episode, you're following this podcast, I hope you like it, and I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Until then, I hope you have an enjoyable life.